Good morning. Oh, you got to do better than that. Good morning. Thank you very much. This is going to be a joint effort. Uh, let me see the hands of the Christ Methodist men that are here. Thank you, men, for being here. You know me and you came anyway. God bless you. Need you to help me out a little amen or a preach it, brother, or something like that once in a while. You know, we're among the frozen chosen this morning, so we need to sort of. You know, the thing that is great about this ministry, I want to thank Sandy for the invitation and uh, thank you for that great prayer. Pray for his ministry in Argentina. But the great thing about this is that it's a foretaste of heaven. Because we're all going to be worshiping our Lord together. And there's not going to be a banner flying over a particular church. There's only going to be the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. And we'll be worshiping Him together. So that's the great thing about coming together as brothers in Christ. I also want to uh, thank uh, Jim Canistrary, who really showed a servant's heart this morning and met me at the door and made sure I had uh, some orange juice and water. Jim, thank you for that. Great servant's heart and appreciate that I also want to thank whoever drove the beautiful white SUV with the two University of Georgia flags flying on it this morning. I'm glad to know there is a saint in the room. I'm a native of Georgia and a big University of Georgia fan, and I want you to remember with me the last several weeks of SEC football, if you would, for just a minute. Seriously, I want you to think back Georgia played Vanderbilt in Nashville. If you remember the game that came right down to the end, Vanderbilt always steps up to the plate when they play Georgia. And this year it was another tight game, came right down to the end, field goal one. And if you saw on television, you saw the University of Georgia players kind of gathered around and they were kind of in a huddle just jumping in the middle of the field. Coach Rick, Mark Rick, the head coach at the University of Georgia, comes running out, grabbing those players, pulling them out of there, telling them that that is inappropriate. They were out on the logo, apparently being disrespectful, and he came out to make that statement. Uh, if you don't know Mark Rick, he is a very committed Christian man. He is a great leader, and he has really stepped up to the plate as a head coach this year. I thought that was a great sign of his character. But a few weeks later, when we went down to Jacksonville for the annual cocktail party, as they call it, against Florida... I hope that you saw the beginning of that game because when Georgia first drove into the end zone, he had told the guys, we need to change the attitude that we have in this game. And if we don't get a penalty for excessive celebration after that first touchdown, I'm going to be mad. Well, I'm going to tell you the bench emptied. And they did. They actually got two penalties after that touchdown. But it... It changed the entire atmosphere of the game, and the momentum had already swung. Last weekend, it was a great victory against Auburn, which is a cross-border rivalry, and he had asked that the fans come to the game dressed in black, which is why I'm wearing black this morning, uh, as, as a recognition of the seniors who were on the team. But what he didn't say, and he kept under wraps very well, was that Georgia came out on the field in black jerseys for like the first time in 40 years. My brother-in-law, who was at the game, said the place just erupted because of that small change. The reason that I share that with you is that it showed to me the genius of a man in his field of motivating his people 
to act appropriately in a given situation. That's what I hope to do today with you as brothers in Christ, to help motivate you to act appropriately in a given situation. And the given situation is worship of God. I really appreciated the singing this morning. I wish I could translate it to about three of our services on Sunday. Uh, God calls out the best in us. God deserves the best, does He not? Look at what He has done for us. And that's what we're going to do. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you have your outlines, that text is printed there. Uh, the outlines on the table are fill in the blank. They have the completed forms that they'll put online. So if you don't understand my accent or I talk too quickly and you miss it, it's online. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good pleasing and perfect will. You see, friends, we can know God's will. The scripture tells us that we can test and approve God's will. But in order to do that, something has to change. And what is it? Our minds. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as we begin to understand and comprehend the scope of this grand gift that we call the gospel, and as we understand how it fits together, then we can begin to test and approve and know God's will. When you hear someone say, well, I just don't know God's will. Well, have you checked it out against Scripture? Has your mind been renewed? Are you in the process of having your mind renewed? Are you being changed because... As that's going on, God will inspire you through the presence of the Holy Spirit to know what His will is. Uh, one of the things that has marked my life is my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that a personal encounter with Jesus leads to transformation in an individual's life. A personal encounter with Jesus leads to transformation of an individual's life. When you meet Jesus Christ, you cannot be the same as you were prior to that event. Are you with me? A personal encounter changes everything about who we are. It changes the way that we see life. When we encounter Jesus, it transforms us mentally, spiritually, physically, and relationally. Jesus called and formed his disciples into a community of friends. He tells them, I no longer call you servants in John 15. I call you friends. A servant doesn't always know what the master's doing, but friends understand one another. And his appeal, the appeal of Jesus was so compelling that they immediately left whatever they were doing to follow him. If you read the passage uh, noted there in Mark 1, the call of the first disciples... When Jesus came up to them, they were tending their nets. They were fishermen. And Jesus called them and said, come and follow me. And Mark says, immediately they left their nets to follow him. Jesus is so compelling 
that when we have a personal encounter with him, it's as if he draws us to himself. Another place in John, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Jesus has a magnetic personality. And a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ is transforming. It changes everything about who we are. <laughs> now, that's my experience. But I'm not the only one who's had that. Let's look at some from Scripture. There were several occasions where Jesus either established or reestablished a personal social relationship with those who had been estranged from a caring community. <clears throat> Pardon me. In John and Luke chapter 7, Jesus welcomes and receives a sinful woman who anoints his feet with oil. She was uh, disdained by the people who were in the room. People said, what in the world is he doing? He's letting this woman touch him? Because in Hebrew culture, if you are touched by someone who's ritually unclean, they contaminate you. That, that spiritual illness is transferred from them to you. And Jesus welcomed this sinful woman and in so doing helped to reestablish her social relationship. So that encounter with Jesus transformed her. In, jo in John chapter 8, Jesus rescued and forgave a woman who had been caught in adultery. You remember that story? And here's my question. If you're reading that story in John, ask yourself this. How did she get caught? Who knows that she's committing adultery? And to get caught in the act of adultery, do you understand the, the police state that that must have existed in the religious leaders to catch this woman in the act? Jesus received her, rescued her, saved her from being stoned. He said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And they all turned away. And then he looked at the woman, and this I think is premier. looked at the woman and he said, go and sin no more. Not only did he forgive her, but he reminded her that her life was different now and she was not to return to her previous way of life. You've been forgiven, so leave that life of sin behind. That relationship changed that woman forever. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus was on a procession through uh, Jericho. He stopped in that procession, looked up in a tree, and there was a small tax collector named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. You remember singing that song as a kid? Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, and as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. And that encounter with Jesus transformed Zacchaeus. You remember what he said? Lord, I will restore anything that I have taken falsely, and half my possessions... I give to the poor. That's a transformation in his relationship. And it, it happened because of a personal encounter with Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, uh, there's a crowd pressing in around him. Everywhere that Jesus went, he had this magnetic personality. People packed in all around. And a woman who was ritually unclean, who'd had a flow of blood for 12 years, she had, the scriptures say, she had wasted all her money on doctors. And I think, if there are any physicians here, I'm sorry that scripture says that, but sometimes you feel that way, especially if you've had this problem for that long. She reached up to touch the hem of his garment, and Jesus stopped the procession. He said, stop, who touched me? And the disciples said, Lord, are, are you nuts? Look at all the people. They're, they're packed in around. Everybody's touching you. He said, no, I felt power go out of me. 
And he looked at the crowd and he called her forward. And simply by recognizing her, he reestablished her place in the community of faith. She was restored and her life was transformed because of that personal encounter with Jesus. In Luke 18, a blind beggar receives his sight from Jesus. He's sitting by the road begging a blind man. It's the only way that he, he could gain subsistence to live. And Jesus stopped him and he said, what do you want? Lord, I want to see. Jesus restored his sight. And the beautiful phrase is that that man arose. He got up from his begging position. Bodily, he had a position of begging. He got up from that begging position and followed Jesus, praising God. Why? Because he had received the one gift that he wanted, the ability to see. Not only could he see physically, but we know he could see spiritually because he was following Jesus, praising God. Those personal encounters transformed individual lives. Friends, the, things I, the thing I want you to hear this morning is that a genuine personal encounter with Jesus changes everything. You can't keep on being the same man that you were when you meet Jesus. And I pray for you that you'll have the experience that I have. That's one of the things about being passionate in preaching. I want others to experience the life that I've experienced through Jesus. Not because of me, but because of Him. And I, to my dying day, I hope I have the opportunity to share that passion. All right, this type of transformation continued through the ministry of the early church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just Jesus who enabled people to experience this transformation of life, but as the power of the Holy Spirit lived in those early believers, they too were able to share that transformation with people in whom they came in contact. For instance, Acts chapter 9, Saul on the road to Damascus. He's going to persecute the Christians. He's going to bring back these people of the way to be tried before the religious authorities. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. And on the road to Damascus, he is literally blinded by the light. And he falls off his donkey and lands on his blessed assurance. And he says... Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And the life of Saul was transformed. He later became Paul and became the great missionary apostle who helped to carry the transforming power of Jesus Christ throughout the world. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, hears the gospel. He's confronted with the gospel. His life is radically altered. He believes he and his entire household are baptized. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia, who is a businesswoman, a seller of purple cloth, hears the gospel message and she's radically transformed in mind and spirit and she and her whole household are baptized. Later in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, the man who's responsible for keeping the disciples in prison, comes and he finds the prison doors blown open. Because Paul and Silas had been in prison, they were singing hymns, an angel came down, an earthquake happened, opened the doors of the prison, and they were out of their cell. And the Philippian jailer, who was responsible for them, feared for his life, because what he was being paid to do had not happened. He feared for his job, he feared for his life. He would not only lose his job, but they might even behead him for allowing these insurgents uh, to go free. And Paul and Silas said, take, 
take peace. We're here. We haven't gone anywhere. And he expresses his fear and he moves from fear to faith in Jesus Christ. And he and his whole household are baptized. So that kind of transformation continued from the ministry of Jesus. It spread to the ministry of church. The evidence of that personal transformation and holy righteous living results from the presence of the risen Christ living in believers. If we have had that personal encounter with Jesus, if we have received Him as Lord, He promises to live in us. When He lives in us, then we can evidence outwardly that personal transformation in holy, righteous living. Remember now, don't get the equation backwards. You don't receive salvation because you live a righteous, holy life. Because our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. It means nothing. But when we have that encounter with Christ, when we invite Him to be Lord and King of our lives, He lives in us by the power of His resurrected Spirit, and He then enables our holy righteous living. So our holy righteous living is an outward expression of an inner reality. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 2. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 2. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. When we become followers of Jesus Christ, we are Christ's ambassadors. Friends, remember that wherever you are, as a believer, you are Christ's ambassador. You don't just represent yourself, but you represent Jesus Christ. How well are you doing that in your relationships, in your language, in your behavior, in the way that you treat your spouse, in the way that you treat your children, in the way that you relate to your co-workers? Are you being Christ's ambassador? It is, the scripture tells us, a high calling. We have this treasure in earthen jars. And the thing that concerns me, I'll share this with you. This happened earlier this week. One of the things that struck me when I came to Memphis was the presence of a number of church-related and Christian private schools. I thought, man, that's, that's really something. What a, what a presence in the community. This week at a basketball game, a Christian school in this community was playing a, an inner-city school. There was some entertainment by some young ladies uh, who were doing their little thing on the, the Christian school side. So they did their little thing, and they felt that it was not up to their standards. As they came off the floor, they were cursing at one another. Christian students at a Christian school. Now my question is, what does that say to those people who are on the opposite side of the court who may not yet be Christians. See, friends, some of the worst advertising for the church of Jesus Christ is through people who profess to be church members. Now, I'm, I'm one of those, so I'm talking about my own. But when we have an encounter with Jesus Christ, it changes everything. We become sensitized to things like that. And sometimes it's just the little things that can make a huge difference. 
that, that extra hand of grace, that extra word of encouragement, that act of forgiveness. We're Christ's ambassadors. You don't just represent yourself. So you can no longer say, well, this is what I want to do. Guess what? His will supersedes our will. Are you with me? Romans chapter 6, verse 19. The faithful are called to offer themselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. We're slaves to righteousness. We're not slaves to our addiction anymore. Uh, We're not slaves to our jobs. We're slaves to righteousness that leads to holiness. These traits that we're talking about are the result of the Holy Spirit working in the life of faithful believers. When the Holy Spirit works in us, these traits become evident to all who know us. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, God saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, friends... Don't think that simply going to Sunday school and church for 50 years gets you anywhere or anything. Do you hear me? The Bible says God saves us not because of righteous things that we have done. You don't earn your way into God's grace. You receive the gift of grace. And it is the gift of God that no one should boast, Paul says in Ephesians. If you look at Romans chapter 8. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. So when, when we have this encounter with Christ and we are transformed, it is not just a spiritual thing that is separated from the body. It's not just an out-of-body experience. It is, it is a corporal experience. It is an incarnation, if you will. Christ comes and gives life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in us. So Christ enables the members of our physical body to act in righteousness. So we have the ability to be healing hands. We have the ability through the presence of the risen Christ in us to be vessels of forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. It it amazes me that the Christian church is the worst about shooting its own wounded. When people are down and out, we have the ability to kick them worse than, than shooting them. What is it about us that we don't act in ways that are redemptive and reconciling? The worst fights in the world are church fights. Where do we get the idea that, that, that democracy is the Christian way of life? Find it for me in Scripture. I, I know people who are more concerned about the next church vote on what it is than they are about seeking God's will and righteousness in their everyday life. Nowhere in Scripture does it say we are to vote on, on God's will. God's will is not up for our input. We're to be transformed by meeting Jesus Christ so that our minds can be renewed and we can perceive God's will. 
You don't go out and ask God to do or to bless what you're doing. You are to go out and to do what it is that God is blessing in the world. Find out what God is blessing, what his will is, and then go do it. Be a part of it. That's why I'm so thrilled to be here. God's obviously blessing this ministry to men. And I say praise God for that. Thanks to Sandy for pouring his heart and life out in this. And hopefully I won't mess it up when he gets back from Argentina and have to start all over again. But you know us Methodists, we get moved around. So if that's the case, I guess they'll just move me around. I don't know. Matthew chapter 5 says that faithful disciples seek to let their light so shine before others that others would see their good deeds and praise their Father in heaven. Whatever we do must point to Jesus. One of my very dear friends and a former staff member at one of my churches, a godly man, was our music minister, choir director. And any time that uh, the choir would receive affirmation from the congregation in the form of applause, he would, he would do this, simply point up, to simply say, God deserves the glory, not me. So what you're doing is an affirmation of what God has done in and through us. We let our light so shine before others that they see our good works and they give glory to God who is in heaven. Um, Howard Fee is a, uh, a great uh, New Testament scholar. He said this, Spirit people, and I, I interpret that as Christians, spirit people not only want to please God, but they are empowered to do so. When we have that encounter with Jesus, we have the ability to praise God in all that we say and all that we do. Have you ever noticed that... Um, the things that we really love in life, we have a tendency to praise. Man, isn't she lovely? And, and what we do is we invite other people to join us in that praise. Man, did you see that play? Wasn't that incredible? What we're doing is offering our praise of what just happened and inviting others to join us in that praise. We want somebody to say, yeah, man, that was incredible. That was great. Give me a headbutt. We say, can you believe that? We're offering praise for something just happened, and we're inviting others to praise. Whatever it is that we think is, is worthy of our praise, we spontaneously, automatically invite others to join us in that praise. I want, I want to talk to you this morning particularly about worship. Paul said in Romans 12, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. What is worship? One definition is this. It means to attribute worth to something or to someone. That this thing or this person is worthy of my attention, of my relationship, of my interaction. And so when we come into corporate worship together, we're expressing our earnest desire to praise God for who he is and for what he has done. So everything that we've talked about on that first page of your notes this morning is foundational to worship. If you've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, 
you've been transformed. And the Holy Spirit working in you is drawing forth these traits which seek to honor and glorify God in all that you say and do. When we come together in corporate worship, we are attributing worth to God for who He is and for what He has done for us. If we've been transformed, then worship is our opportunity to thank God joyfully, happily, with thanksgiving and gratitude with all that we have and all that we are. Do you believe that? Then why is our worship so lousy? When you go to church on Sunday, it's, it's almost like going to the morgue. You know, the only difference is the hats. What is it with us? I think most of us in this room, the problem is we're just so white, we can't help ourselves. One of the things I love is preaching in an African-American church. Because, man, if it's in you, they will pull it out of you. They are joyful and gleeful. They're thanking God with expressions of gratitude and worship. Most of the people I see on Sunday... They come with this posture, and their theme song is, I shall not be moved. (laughs) Go ahead, preacher, try me. The goal of worship is friendship and intimacy with God. Friendship and intimacy with God. And it's something that the Father desires in our relationship with Him. Think about your intimate friendships. Now, maybe it's me, and I know coming from a Wesleyan background, we've always been categorized as being enthusiasts. And that was, the, that was the moniker that they placed on John Wesley. He was an enthusiast out there preaching in a field. And at first, he called it a vain thing, Ill, ill-conceived. He didn't like it either, but that's where the need was, and that's where he went. Somebody said, how do you do it? How do you preach to thousands of people, you know, with, without a church? He said, I set a fire in the pulpit and people come to watch me burn. Um, I think about your friendships and, and the intimate friendships uh, that you share with others. I'm, I'm a big hugger. And I have, some, I have some great godly men who were my prayer partners and prayer warriors for years in Augusta where I... I I've just moved from. And, <laughs> excuse me, we would see each other. We'd give each other a big bear hug. And Rick Allen, who's just one of my closest friends, he and I were also golfing buddies. And we'd have the opportunity to go out on the golf course and just share some absolutely beautiful time in a beautiful place and, and wonderful fellowship. We'd get through on the 18th green and we would just hug and we'd embrace and you'd see guys looking at us like, what is going on? Friendship. And intimacy with God is the goal of worship. And that can be expressed in our personal relationships as well. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. So worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. It's more, gentlemen, than just simply mental assent to truth claims. Sometimes I think we believe that we can educate people into proper worship. I would propose that you motivate people into proper worship. And you motivate them based on their relationship with Jesus. 
If you are grateful for what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you can't help but praise. Jesus also said in that passage in John 4 that uh, this was the encounter that he had with the Samaritan woman at the well. And they, they sort of argued about worship. She said, well, we Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus said, what, you Samaritans don't even know what you're worshiping. He said, your worship is, is not true. What does false worship look like? William Barclay said three elements of false worship. Number one is it's selective. It picks out the bits and pieces of Scripture or truth about God that it wants and it leaves everything else behind. The problems with the Samaritans is that they only revered the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. The Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's all. That was it for them. And Jesus said, that gives you a truncated version of God. Your view of God is incomplete. And you've selected only part of of who God is. So your worship is selective. Secondly, Barclay says, false worship is ignorant worship. 1 Peter 3.15, if you haven't gotten there in Amen, you'll get there. Uh, But our faith is built on hope, but our hope is based in reason. We understand why we can worship because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Rationally, it makes sense to the believer. It's foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it is life. And so, false worship is ignorant. Third, false worship is superstitious. You, know, you, you, you go to worship because you're afraid God's going to get you if you don't. That's just superstition. That's like the whole, you know, black cat walking across and underneath a ladder and wearing the number 13, all that. That's superstition. You see that back in 2 Kings when the Samaritans take their, uh, their idols, their gods with them to worship. They feel like, well, we've got to take our gods with us. You know, let's go. Uh, I, if you've been in, in foreign countries, I've been in India on mission trips and uh, India is a very religious world, but it's polytheistic, and and their gods are, are idols, and so they feel like they got to take their god with them wherever they go. You know, they have these little you know wobble-headed dolls that they put up on the you know that's that's their god, and they have to take it with us. That's superstitious. But I want to talk to you today about love-based worship. Uh, on your outline there, it says blank worship. It's total worship, total worship based on love. Great story in John chapter 12. Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Mary anoints his feet. And Judas looks and says, what are you doing? You're wasting all that perfume. We could have sold that and we could have given it to the missions committee. Well, we know he didn't really want to give it to the missions committee because he was already dipping in the till. But in that one small episode, you see Mary, who loves Jesus enough to pour herself out, and anoint, his, anoint him with this expensive perfume. And then you see the response of Judas, which is disdain. Ugh, why would you do that? And then you also, as you read later, you see the response of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who say, what are we going to do? If we keep going on like this, he's going to have the whole world following after him. Total worship helps us to bring our best. We worship, number one, with a renewed mind. A renewed mind. Read uh, Philippians 2. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
and took the form of a slave and became obedient, obedient even unto death upon a cross. And because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we have the mind of Christ in us, a renewed mind, as Paul said in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Matthew 22, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Heart, soul, and mind. And then some translations add strength. So a renewed mind. We pray with understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And we praise with that understanding. You know, in our praising, God inhabits the praise of His people. Some people say, well, I just didn't sense God in worship today. Well, did you give God anywhere to go? Did you open the door? Did you invite God in? God inhabits the praise of His people. If you're not praising, where does He go? So if God, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? It isn't God. Secondly, we worship with our revived emotions. Uh, and you can, you can see that outlined in Romans 12, 11 through 15. Uh, letter A, zeal, fervor, and spirituality. Again, there in Romans 12. We worship with revived emotions, with zeal, with fervor. We're excited, glad to be. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord, the psalmist said. You know, some people come into worship and say, they don't look glad to be there. They can't wait to get out. All right, I know, I'm preaching. Letter B, uh, Psalm 47 says that we worship with renewed emotions by shouting and clapping our hands. Guess what? Hand clapping is in the Bible. It's okay, Presbyterians. Well, I just don't think you ought to clap in church. That's not what the Bible says. So the question is, you believe the Bible or not? Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. And shouting. You know, we Methodists, early on, we were called shouting Methodists. Because people would offer, when, when God's Spirit indwelled them, they would shout, Hallelujah! Not because they're trying to call attention to themselves, but because they're so filled with a revived emotion that God is living in them, that the risen Christ is in them, that they were so filled with that emotion it had nowhere to go but out the mouth. And what do we say? We come to worship and we say, shh. We want people to be so quiet, we arm the room with hushers. You know the ones that hand out the bulletins that are the hushers? <laughs> Feel free to laugh when you get it. Letter D. We rejoice and express our thanksgiving. We worship with that revived emotion. With rejoicing and expressing of thanksgiving. In Psalm 100, Philippians 4. We are thanking God for what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. When we gather in worship, we're thanking God for the gift of salvation. Our eternal destiny has been sealed. We are no longer our own. We belong to Jesus Christ. 
And we thank God for that. And we rejoice and express our thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you've done for me what I could never do for myself. We thank Him for His Spirit that lives in us. We thank Him for the transformation that we've experienced because of our personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And it revives our emotion and it excites us and sets us on fire. Letter E, whatever we do, we work at it with all our heart. We give everything we've got to worship. We don't come in and say, okay, do one to me. Lay it on me, go ahead, let's get it over with. But we work at it with all of our heart. Letter F, it's also appropriate to be silent before the Lord. It's appropriate for us to have silence. Not all the time. But it is appropriate as an act of awe and worship to be silent before the Lord. Thirdly, we worship with our regenerated spirit. And you see that in Ezekiel 36 and in John 1. Uh, John 4 says we're worshiping in spirit. Letter B, we're praying in the spirit. Letter C, we're singing spiritual songs. Letter D, we're giving thanks well. We're doing this well because it honors God and it is pouring forth from the spirit who resides within us. Number Pardon me. Number four, we worship with our rededicated body. Paul said in 12, Romans 12, the text for today, I beg you, I plead with you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. We worship with our bodies, with our posture, with all that we are. Letter A, presenting our whole bodies to God as living sacrifices. Letter B, exercising ourselves into godliness. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Letter C, bowing down and kneeling in worship. Uh, those of you that come from uh, more liturgical traditions, uh, Lutheran, Episcopalian, perhaps even Roman Catholic, uh, bowing in reverence for the cross when the, in the procession when the cross comes by to bow out of reverence. Uh, I've been very touched at, at Christ Methodist when we celebrate communion. Everyone is invited to come and to kneel at the communion rail to receive the elements as a sign of humility. And I've, I've had the practice in my own ministry of during the pastoral prayer when that's being offered to kneel in prayer. And I know in, in some old, I know in Georgia we have a lot of very historic worship structures. And many of them were uh, Anglican or now Episcopalian churches with kneelers. And people would come in and pull the kneeler down and kneel to pray. So bowing, kneeling, and humbling ourselves before God out of gratitude for this incredible gift that he's given us is appropriate as an act of worship. Uh, letter D, waving hands in praise. Uh, that's from Psalm 63, verse 4. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm, you know, I'm saying that only... It, only if you are very expressive and waving your hands all the time, uh, you know, that, that can be overdone. There are people who overdo that and who uh, make it into more uh, an attention-grabbing thing for themselves than an act of worship. But, but consider this. When you see somebody that you, that you love or appreciate and you haven't seen them for a while and you notice them across the room, how do you get their attention? How do you get their attention? You call their name and you wait. Hey, Ralph! Well, translate that into worship. 
You haven't been in the house of God for a week. And you're coming to meet your Savior. So how do you want to greet Him? Jesus! It's biblical. The question is, do we believe that? And does it mean enough for us to get over ourselves? To get over our pride of feeling like we've got to be a certain dignified way. Uh, Letter E, lifting hands appropriately. And if if you've been in an expressive worship service, you've seen people lift their hands. And it's an act of submission, an act of surrender, an act of praise. And, and for some people, they get, I know, you get wiggly when you see people doing it. What are they doing? Well, they're worshiping in a biblical fashion. Letter F, standing before the Lord in awe. I had the opportunity uh, last, no, no, two, two years ago in January, our daughter is a majorette, and her band, high school band, was invited to London to be a part of the Lord Mayor's New Year's Day parade in London. Do you know how cold it is in London in January? We were there. It was a great experience. One day we had the opportunity to, to tour on our own around London. I went to St. Paul's Cathedral. It's, it is awe-inspiring. It's an incredible structure. Uh, dedicated to the worship of God, uh, Sir Christopher Wren and I found myself standing in there in awe. Uh, architecture can do a lot to help us worship. And any time that the beauty of a room lifts our eyes to heaven, it helps us to worship and honor and glorify God. Letter G, clapping hands again uh, with our rededicated bodies. Letter H, playing instruments. So instruments, when they're offered to God in praise, are a part of this glorious uh, outpouring of God's Spirit. Shaking tambourines and playing percussion instruments. Again, I've been in Africa and India, and those people do an incredible job. Letter J, dancing before the Lord. If I've got any Baptist friends, I'm sorry. It's in the Bible. It's there. Um, God bless you. Letter K, bowing our heads again in an attitude of uh, respect and humility before God. Letter L, lifting our head and our eyes. Scripture references there, lifting our, our eyes to heaven. Lord, I lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, letter M, praising, singing, and shouting. Shouting, actually opening your mouth and noise coming out of it on Sunday. Fancy that. And also in being silent before the Lord is also appropriate. Okay, just a few uh, quick tips before we go. A, the Bible tells us, remember the Sabbath day. Sometimes the reason that we can't worship fully is that we've got such a full schedule on Sunday that we don't know how we're going to get it all done. God tells us to have a Sabbath day of rest. So why not clear your calendar and let that be a day of rest and give yourself fully and completely to worship. If I have worshipped well on Sunday, I'm completely exhausted in the afternoon. 
had a seminary professor tell me, if you are not completely wiped out after worship, you haven't given yourself wholly and completely to God. Remember the Sabbath day. Now for me, I also have to take a day off, which is typically Thursday, which in God's name, why am I here this early in the morning? And Thursday is my day off. That's my day of rest. And I, I, don't, I don't work. I play and rest. Uh, B, preparation for worship begins on Monday. Uh, don't, don't try to cram it in 30 seconds after you get out of the car before you get into the sanctuary. Let me give you some suggestions about how you can prepare. First of all, it begins on Monday in prayer, Bible study, and personal devotion. As you worship in your own prayer closet, in your own personal life, your, our corporate worship is a reflection of our individual worship. So if our corporate worship stinks, it's because we haven't been preparing ourselves individually so that when we come together, we can corporately worship God. Plan ahead. You know when worship begins. Plan ahead. Pray with your family the night before. So that when you wake up, you've got this attitude of worship in your mind. Take enough time to get ready. You know, if you've got to be at the church at 9.30, make the time that you need to be there. Plan ahead. And explain to your children what's going on. Explain to them why we worship the way that we do. If you have guests who are coming with you, invite them. Don't use the excuse that you've got out-of-town company. I'm sorry, that is just a lousy excuse. There's an opportunity to be an evangelist. Invite them to come with you and explain what's going on and explain how proud you are of your congregation's worship. And if you're not proud of your congregation's worship, then worship in a way that will make you proud of your congregation's worship. Help, help people find the aids that they need. Hymnal, uh, Bible, bulletin, hearing impaired uh, assistance. Let them show them where the restrooms are. Give them the assistance that they need. Uh, arrive early. Please make an effort to get there on time. Do you get to work on time? Then why not get to worship on time, men? It's your appointment with your divine creator who's bigger than your boss. Get there on time. All right, I know, I'm preaching. Get there early so that you can settle in, so that you can pray, so that you can prepare. Make a note if they're in the bulletin. Make a note if there's anything special going on so that you'll know how to act at that time in the worship service so that you can lead the others around you and be a leader in that regard. Don't come flying in at the last minute, grab the bolts and sit down. And think, oh, God, fine. What kind of attitude is that? And how it's got, you're laughing because you know it's true. You know, you ought to sit where I sit one Sunday. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Set an example for others around you. <coughs> Sing. I know you can do it. I heard you this morning. Sounded fantastic. I love the sound of a room full of men singing praise to God. Lead. Sing. You know, the Bible says make a joyful noise. 
You know, but you've got to open your mouth and let the sound come out. Sing unto the Lord. Uh, let me make a suggestion. Sit down front. Sit down front and engage yourself. If, if, let me tell you something. People who have ADD or ADHD, researchers have found if they are closer to the action, they are more engaged. I know a lot of children through the years whose parents have worried because their kids are ADD. And the teacher says, move them down front. Sit them in the front of the room. If they sit in the back, they are too easily distracted. And if you've ever sat in the back of the sanctuary, you know what I'm talking about. There's more going on outside that's distracting. And to deal with distractions, um, that's letter E on your outline, you want to protect yourself from distractions. The best way to do that is to pray. I'm sorry, I skipped over C. C, letter C, worship is not a spectator sport. You don't come to watch worship. You come to play. You come to participate. You're on the field. It's not a spectator sport. The primary motivation of the worshiper should be to come into the sanctuary to give all that we are and have back to God out of gratitude, love, and obedience. Letter D, style is simply a matter of personal preference. So don't get high and mighty thinking that you've gotten the answer because you worship in a particular way. That's just a matter of personal preference. It's not a biblical mandate. The Bible does not say there's only one style of worship. As you've seen already, the Bible describes a wide variety of types of worship. God has created music. God loves all music if it honors and glorifies Him. So whether it's rock and roll or rock and soul or rap or classical, if it honors God, it glorifies Him and He doesn't care. So get over your own personal preference. You don't have the final say. Letter D, protection from distraction. Pray up. Pray up before worship. Pray during worship. If there's a, uh, an unruly child around you or if there's a guy snoring next to you, uh, pray for that person. Pray for the leaders of worship. And then pray after for any concerns that may arise. Um, and letter F, be committed to your congregation's worship life. Be there. Make it a priority. Bring your guests. Encourage those who are servants among you who serve in your congregation. Encourage them, whether it's musicians, whether it's the choir, whether it's the ushers, whether it's the pastor or the liturgist or whoever it might be. Encourage them. Be committed to your congregation's worship life. And finally, men, be the spiritual leaders of your home and your family and make it, that is worship, a priority. If we do that, then we'll fulfill what Paul says, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, because that is our spiritual act of worship. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the opportunity to hear again from your word the powerful story of transformed living because of our encounter with your son, Jesus. Lord, help us as we gather in worship in our various congregations this week to offer all that we have and all that we are back to you at a praise and thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, send us forth this morning with your spirit living in us so that we might be your ambassadors and be shining lights of the gospel of truth and all that we say and all that we do. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you, man. Have a great day.